Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the best of my time capsule 2023 part 2. I'm Mike Fenton Stevens and this is the second of our special end of year compilations featuring a taste of some of our guests from the past year and the sort of thing they choose to put in a time capsule. When I say the taste of them I didn't mean what you thought. Now, there's lots of humour, obviously, a little bit of politics, as Ben Elton used to say, and some serious bits. But all prompted by the question, what five things from your life, four you love and one you'd like to bury and forget, would you put in a time capsule? If you're new to this podcast, you'll be amazed at the enormous variety of responses that simple question can produce, and how seriously our guests wade through the vast bank of memories they have from their lives to make sure these are genuinely the things they would most want. For example, our first guest, the actor, writer and comedian Bridget Christie, who, when she spoke to me, had just completed the first television series she'd written and starred in, The Change, the story of a woman coping with the change in her life brought about by the menopause. This led to this fascinating and very enlightening conversation, especially, I'm sure, for all our male listeners. I am lucky... I think I went into perimenopause about 48 and I'm, I'm now, I'm 52 in August and I haven't had a period for almost two years now. So, I'm, so you're menopausal? Yeah, exactly. So mine was quick. But it's not a universal experience, Michael. You know, we all have a different one, just like childbirth, just like pregnancy, just like puberties. They're all completely different, you know. Mm. But I think the silence around it is probably the worst thing. I remember in lockdown, I was suddenly aware of the weight of that silence, you know, and I remember I was, I was doing my walk, you know, we were allowed to go out for our walk and um, I haven't really thought about it until it, until mine began, to be mm. honest with you, um, about the menopause. It just wasn't something that was no. talked about that my friends, my friends or my sisters or, and even my mum, I do remember my mum having symptoms and I really regret not talking to her about it more on any, deeper level other than oh, are you okay mum you know because mm. I think that must have been quite isolating I don't know if she talked to my older sisters because I've got five older sisters about it but it suddenly struck me in lockdown and it started happening to me and I started noticing like older women from any age from between about mid 50s to 80 and I would look at them and I would think and a lot of the time they would be on their own you know and I and or struggling with shopping or whatever and I, I and I just thought, what was yours like? Did you talk to somebody? Mm. Did you have support? Did you have to leave work? What were your colleagues like? Was your partner kind to you? Were your kids kind to you? Have you got any kids or family? Or were you completely by yourself? Mm. And I just felt completely overwhelmed by it. I felt really, really sad. And I thought, I don't want any woman to go through that. You see, when you talk to people about things they cherish, the conversation can often turn quite serious. Then again, I tend to listen rather than join in, although I did know a surprising amount about the menopause, more than I think I knew I knew. 
That isn't the case, of course, when I'm being a fanboy, though. I've long enjoyed the style and nerve of the writer, comedian, actor, and now filmmaker, Dave Earl. And I was lucky enough to appear as a guest on his and Joe Wilkinson's unique podcast, Chatterbix, during the year. That gave me the chance to invite Dave, and of course Joe, on my time capsule. I was delighted because I thought that Dave's film, Brian and Charles, was the loveliest film of 2023. And if you haven't seen it, do yourself a favour and find it. Anyway, here is Dave talking about the making of the film. Yeah, I'd never had any ambition to make a film, really. It was something other people did, and I had no idea how you went about doing it. I still don't know. <laughs> I don't know what we put on screen, and um, like me and Chris are starting to write a new idea now. Right? Well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what we're doing. Yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> no. But that is that what happened with Brian and Charles? Do you sort of go, well, that's quite an interesting idea. Let's see where it goes. That idea was me, Chris, Rupert, and then Jim, the director, mm. just loving Charles and putting my character, Brian, with him, and just thinking, well, let's make a little short film and sort of immortalise them and just go, we were really worried, I don't know why, (laughs) that someone else would go, I'm going to do a robot thing that's a bit cranky and doesn't talk very well. (laughs) So we just wanted to sort of put it out there and go, we did this, and then move on. Yeah. And I remember when Jim sent the edit, we just went, yeah, YouTube, 270 views, move on, next. Mm -hmm. And then it just gained a bit of a... Yeah, bit of a thing. In fact, we felt it the first day. Suddenly, lots of people that I really admired got in contact online, and I was like, oh. Yeah. Oh. Oh, This is more than I thought. Yeah, oh, my God, yeah. Yeah. Way more. Because I've written some stuff before with Joe, and it just goes, like, stuff that I'm really proud of, and Mm. just totally under the radar. You go, oh, right, okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And that's often the case, isn't it, in a career? I mean, if you get interviewed on other podcasts or something, and people are talking to you about your career, and they tend to sort of go through a list of things, and you go, yeah, yeah, I did all those, yeah. Yeah, I did all <laughs> yeah. those things. But actually, yeah. the thing that you really, really loved, nobody ever mentions. No. And so I question, is it, what is that thing that I put out that I really loved? Is it any good? Like, <laughs> is it rubbish? Is it me? Is it, yeah. It's a weird thing what sort of connects. And I felt like Brighton and Charles was sort of special because we loved it. And whenever we did it in the clubs, people loved it. But I didn't think anyone else outside of that environment would like it. Mm. But, I mean, people listening to this were like, I didn't like it. <laughs> but some, some people liked it, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Move on, for God's yeah. sake. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. oh, Brian yeah, Charles, yeah. Brian Charles. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking, of course, it's a bloody brilliant film. Now, most of the guests we have on My Time Capsule, we contact ourselves, and we're always delighted when people accept our invitation. Not as often as you'd think, actually. It's a lot of work. But every now and again, we get offered guests by a PR company or even their agent when they're about to go on tour or have a book out. The podcast isn't really a vehicle for promoting things, but we're always happy to talk about a show or a book during the podcast especially when it leads to things like this. If you're a fan of wildlife programmes, then you may not know the name Doug Allen, but you will have certainly seen his work. He's been filming extraordinary footage of animals in the wild for most of his long, award-winning and distinguished career. So when Doug was offered to us to help promote his theatre tour, I jumped at the chance, especially so I could ask this question. Did you work on the, that extraordinary thing of the orcas working as a team? Yeah, that, well, that was really, Michael, that was like a 35-year holy grail for me. I bet. I first learned about that behaviour when I was working in the Antarctic back in 1976. No. We used, yeah, we used to, we made friends with um, other bases. We would get radio links going with different bases. And uh, we had one or two international dance matches <laughs> over the radio. Now you need an you need an enormous amount of trust yeah. in your competitors, <laughs> and you know if they get too many one eighties, then there's something funny going on somewhere. <laughs> anyway, we, we had an international dance game with um, this Argentinian base, and we were talking to them through the summer, and just chatting. And someone said that they have seen orcas producing 
you know, knocking seals off ice floes during this technique. And I, I thought at the time, gosh, isn't that an amazing piece of behaviour to see? Mm. Um, and it was the first time anyone there had ever seen it. So when I started filming and, and going to the Antarctic, it was still just a myth almost. No one ever talked about seeing it. Mm. And I've got to say that back in back in those days, back in the, the early 90s when we did Life in the Freezer, whales generally were much less common in the Antarctic than they are now. The last 15 years, 20 years, I've really seen the numbers come back again. Right. <clears throat> and I think that's partly because just to break off slightly, you know, when you take all the whales out of a population, like the whalers did, mm. then you leave no knowledge of that location in the whales that are left. Oh, of course. So yeah. the whales have to the whales have to multiply and then refind from scratch. So they discover it exactly. Yeah, they're searching for new hunting grounds, as it were. Exactly. So wow. they've rediscovered the Antarctic, and that's partly why the numbers are, are picking up because they know a good thing when they get on it. Mm. Anyway. While the orca sighting was confirmed in 75, there were so few orcas around, it was still no one else saw it. So we sort of looked for it or looked for orcas, but we never saw them doing things. And then there was a series called Life, mm. which decided that they would give me some time on a ship specifically dedicated to try to find the orcas and see if they would do this behaviour. So... That trip went quite well. We found the orcas, but we didn't find them hunting. Um, but what we could prove was that you, in the hands of a good skipper, mm. you could follow orcas without them, you know, being afraid and swimming away. Yeah. And that was quite a, an important thing because uh, I think two or maybe three years after that first series, Frozen Planet came along and I was asked if I thought that we should try for the hunting killer whales again. Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, I think we should, but we should go earlier in the year before we've got 24-hour daylight. We had gone down at a time in the summer where the sun was setting and there was about a couple of hours of darkness. Mm -hmm. And we would lose the orcas in that period of darkness because they didn't always swim in a straight line. Mm -hmm. So I said to Alistair, let's go down earlier in the season so we can follow the orcas 24 hours a day if we have to. So anyway, it did all come together, amazingly. Amazing. We found a pod of orcas and they started hunting. And we spent about two weeks with and without a company. We weren't always with them. But um, we would find them enough. And in that time, I think we saw about 25 attacks wow. and about 130 waves. And there's plenty more where that came from in Doug's fantastic episode. OK, Lindsay Santoro is a young stand-up comedian who, when I spoke to her, was beginning to be noticed. Since then, she's had a smash hit at the Edinburgh Fringe and was nominated for Best Newcomer. All right, she didn't win it, but I have no doubt she is going places. I certainly hope so, because I loved talking to her. She made me laugh like a drain. And it was whilst researching her work that I came across her website. Now, if you're looking for someone to design a website for you, then I have to say that Lindsay is not the person to do it. I know you said nobody ever looks at a website anymore, but I did. I looked at your website. <laughs> I love my website. I love your website as well. I love the fact that it's this is what a website should be. This is not your bloody clever stuff. This is this is bang and it sparkles and jumps and <laughs> you click on faces and things like that. It's really good. But also, why? Why, Lindsay, is there a karaoke track of Careless Whisper by George Michael on it? So... Back when the internet was a, was beginning in its infancy, all you could do is it basically essentially very crude graphics and you couldn't put music on like you could now. It had to be, I think it was called a MIDI file or something. Mm. And it's very basic, like, type music. Yeah. And so when I started making my website, I thought, oh, hang on, I know how to make a website, but I only know how to make a website from the very beginning of when the websites <laughs> began. So I thought, well, I'll just try and capture a bit of nostalgia. And something <laughs> just urged me to put these little graphics of, like, Spider-Man on it, and I think it's Spider-Man, and some dollar signs and careless whispers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I People just... dancing badly. <laughs> I, just I know. <laughs> It's just, and I showed it to my husband and he said, why have you done that? 
And I said, because nobody looks at websites really anymore. It's all social media. I thought, why not? All my gig dates are wrong. You have to manually update that. That drives me mad. I just think there's got to be a better way to. I think it's got a PR department. Oh, yeah. I haven't Mm -hmm. got one of them. No, me neither. I'm worried if if I ever got one, they'd just get rid of my beautiful website, which is just. Oh, no, can't have that. I know if ever I want to just sing along to Careless Whisper but not have George Michael showing me up, it's the place to go to. Oh, I love Lindsay Santoro. If you want to cheer yourself up, have a listen to that episode. And if, and I know this is unlikely, you listen to any other podcast apart from mine, then A, how do you get the time? And B, you must know my next guest, Matthew Crosby, part of the Pappy's team. And if you don't, A, I'd be amazed, and B, I hope this clip of him will encourage you to. Once you've cleared the My Time Capsule backlog, obviously. I've just found myself, and it's this is literally in the last two, three weeks, and I know I shouldn't be saying this because it's not in my age bracket, but I've started saying wicked. <laughs> and I, like when I was when I was ten, I'd say wicked all the time because <laughs> I was ten. I was allowed to say wicked, and it was you know nineteen ninety when people were saying wicked. When it was wicked. When it, when, when it, well, life obviously was wicked in nineteen ninety, but yeah. um, but but now I find myself going to say it. And I get the w- bit out. Of, I'm going I'm to I'm switch to wow, I think. Because once the word's out your mouth, I go, w- I, can't, I can't be saying wicked, I'm 43. I'm a sense of decorum. <laughs> I don't think far off that age. I played a character in uh, The Legacy of Reggie Perrin. Oh, yes. It's a great television series until basically Reggie Perrin died. So he wasn't in the legacy of Reggie Perrin. So the whole driving force behind the thing disappeared. Anyway, I played a new character that was introduced. It was a burnt-out yuppie. Okay, okay. So basically, I had a, a, a long grey ponytail, and all I said was wicked. That was. Do you remember Reggie Perrin? I do remember Reggie Perrin, yeah, yeah, of course. Leonard Rossiter, yeah. And do you remember they had these characters used to say, oh, super, lovely, smashing. That's right, yes, yes. And they added a wicked on the end, which is right. <laughs> super, lovely, smashing, wicked, I used to say at the end of it. Well, it's easy to learn your lines, isn't it? Very easy, yeah. When it gets to the end of... When everyone stopped talking, I guess you just say wicked. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That must have been in the 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, I think Wicked was definitely... I mean, I think I, I'm from Bromley, and obviously Bromley was one of the places where where jungle music uh, sort of sprung from. Mm. I don't know why. There's no jungles there. <laughs> uh, but, but, but it seemed like a lot of jungle music was being played in, in Bromley in the, sort of the early 90s. And there was a lot of Wicked there. But I don't know why it's just suddenly crept back in. These things just creep back into your vernacular. Don't they just, yeah. I think it's. I've got little kids... And it's funny how, and I don't know if they're getting this from us or from school, mm. but it seems like they're obsessed with Groovy. Ah. Groovy seems to be, and I mean, my, my daughter's very little. My daughter's uh, three and a half. My other daughter's 18 months and can barely say anything. <laughs> but, you know, do I look groovy? When she puts her sunglasses on, do, you, do I look groovy is what she says. And it must be from us oh. saying, oh, you look groovy. Matt, that's my other catchphrase. That's annoying, isn't it? <laughs> Honestly, I've played a character in Only Fools and Horses. Who's, oh, that's right. Yeah, child- yeah. The Groovy Gang. She is actually a child, though. She's not a, an adult pretending to be a child. No. She's a, she's a genuine child, as I think so. Uh. Matthew Crosby there, both groovy and wicked. And those words could be applied to my next time capsulette, the actor Catherine Tildesley, who you'll know from Corrie and the BBC comedy Scarborough. She's a Manchester girl, of course, and she's a great singer. But it was the voice of her granddad that she really treasured, as she explained when she spoke to me. My granddad was my hero. He was an incredible man. He played for United for a short time and then he played for Juventus in Tasmania. And he was also a jazz singer. And he had the most incredible voice, almost like a cross between Nat King Cole and Billy Eckstein. Beautiful. And he never quite made it, mainly because he had dyslexia and he, he really struggled to remember lyrics. But he was incredible. Oh, the most gorgeous voice. And I remember, because I used to do the circuit around Manchester, I used to sing at working men's clubs. And then as time went on, I then started to sing for Manchester United and I started to get asked to do, you know, 
big, wonderful gigs. I went on tour with them. I did the Players Awards. Wow. And I went to Abu Dhabi. I did the Grand Prix in Abu Dhabi. It, it was an amazing time. Yeah. And I got asked to do this lovely function at the Lowry Hotel in, in Manchester. I can't remember what it was for now, but I um, I asked if my grandparents could come. My granddad was such a silver fox. He loved a night out. <laughs> so I took them and um, about two o'clock in the morning when I'd, I'd sang and, you know, everything was dying down, my granddad grabbed the microphone and he just started singing. He sang a song called Warmer World by Billy Eckstein, which isn't that well known, but it's the most beautiful song. And um, and he sang it and he brought the house down. And then he continued dancing with my grandma till about three o'clock in the morning, by which point I'd gone to bed. And all my friends the next day and the other artists were like, Kath, your granddad bought the house down. And then he was the last person to go to bed. Like everyone just <laughs> fell in love with my granddad. And, um, and he's no longer with us. Um, we lost him a few years ago now, but he was... He was my biggest cheerleader. He bought me my first PA system when I started singing so I could, you know, support myself. And he was just, he was a big hero in my life and such a great loss when he left us. And um, I just regret, I, I just wish that he could have met Alfie and Iris because I know that he would have been completely in love with them. But mm. I make sure that, I, you know, Alfie knows all about Grandad Jim and how much he meant to us and, I was really lucky to have him in my life. And my grandma's still with us, thank God. And she's equally as amazing. But um, yeah, that was a real moment for me. I just thought, oh my God, my granddad's an absolute hero. <laughs> yeah, I bet he loved the fact that you started singing. Oh, he loved it. I really regret not recording a duet with my granddad. Uh, I did an album a few years ago and some of the songs on there were for my granddad. And I always feel like he's with me. Whenever I'm singing, I always feel... I always feel like his presence is is there, if you will. It's very clear from lots of my guests that the people we've known from the past stay with us. So I'm sure Catherine's right. Anyway, it's time to take a short break from this compilation, which I hope you're enjoying, to listen to some ads, which you can do whilst you put the kettle on. It won't fit. Anyway, it's entirely up to you. Put the kettle on, listen to the ads, listen to the ads and put the kettle on. Just listen to the ads. Oh, for goodness sake, here are the ads. Oh, no sugar for me, please. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back, and thanks for the biscuit. Right, on to our next extract – 
Now, I love meeting someone completely new to me on the podcast. When I first did it, I was worried that I wouldn't have the same rapport as I seemed to have with the people I knew, or that not knowing much about their life and career would make the conversation a bit stilted. But I soon discovered that the surprise nature of the thing was what made it work. And this is a good example of that. It's a little bit of chat that I had with the stand-up Daniel Fox. Now, I'm old enough to be Daniel's granddad, so I wondered if we'd have much in common. But he's such a naturally funny and engaging man. We fell straight into it. I've been having a good long think and listening to what lots of other people have said and thinking, hmm, Mm. what would I do? (laughs) My mind immediately went so many things that initially I was thinking was all food related. It probably (laughs) says a lot about me. And then other people, I just listened to, I just listened to Bridget Christie's and she's sort of the concept of hope. I was like, oh yeah, that probably is a good thing to put in there. (laughs) Probably, yes. (laughs) Maybe I'll swap pan or chocolat for um, (laughs) world peace or something. (laughs) I think I've gravitated a little bit to things that I think might have a bit of a time limit on them. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think I'm being a preservationist in some of the things I've picked. <laughs> okay, well, let's have a look at them. Let's see what number one is. Okay, number one is coffee. I love coffee so much, and I think I'm going to specifically say a bag of Perky Blenders uh, <laughs> roast, which is a an East London based kind of coffee roasting grinding company. Yeah, uh, very lots of. I mean, they have all sorts of different types, but I love. I love coffee and it's apparently on its way out. And there's different predictions of some people saying by 2080, there'll be no more coffee. Some people 2050, which is so close. That's ridiculous. I'll be gone, but you'll be still there, you know, hankering after a cup. If the coffee's not here, I won't still be here. I'll have have pressed myself through a cafetier. Is that climate change? Are they saying that? Yeah, it's climate change. And it's weird stuff as well, because it's obviously coffee's grown in quite hot climes, but it's... um, I was reading about it, and it's to do with the more heat there is, the more insects there are in those areas. Right. And they reduce the soil quality somehow. They, they like make it looser or something, mm. and they also affect the plants and all sorts of stuff, but it's, it's resulting in fewer and fewer healthy trees bearing beans. And right. something also about in Colombia, where they're grown a lot, like the mountains, something to do with the climate has resulted in shorter daylight hours. Good Lord. I don't know what that is, but that reduction in hours is by quite a chunk right. has meant that that's just bearing less fruit. So what, clouding up, do you think? I think maybe. Yeah. yeah, it must be. It must be something to do with that. Wow. Or some sort of haze or something. Yeah, so anyway, I'm putting a good few crates of coffee in, enough for me. <laughs> perky, blinders, perky blinders. Perky blenders. Perky blenders. Perky blenders, of course it perky is. Perky blenders. Of course, how dare I not get that joke? <laughs> how ridiculous. <laughs> I feel I should be thrown out of the writers' union. Is that them at the door? I think, I think it is. Oh no, the pun brigade are here. They've decided I can't be a member anymore. How embarrassing! You're removing your fingers. <laughs> so, uh, when did you discover coffee? Then, how young were you? Do you know what I came to it? I think in the most malicious way. I used to hate it so much and thought it was so disgusting. And then while I was writing my dissertation, sort of my final year at university, I started almost like, I've never, I've, I've never been like a, a one for drugs or substances or anything like that, but I started using coffee like a drug mm. to the point of hate, taking like sort of Kenko, uh, just like freeze-dried crappy coffee <laughs> and having maybe five or six tablespoons of the stuff right. in a mug. And so it was like almost quite thick, pinching my nose, glugging it back, and then sort of rinsing my mouth out so I didn't have to taste it. <laughs> but then I would sort of jitter my way through, but be so wired and just ch- plow through an essay. And after that, when that sort of came to an end, I obviously wasn't doing that anymore, but I just sort of had acquired a taste for it. Is it a taste for the caffeine, do you think? No, because a, a, a good decaf, also lovely. Mm. It's, it's the smell of it, and it's increasingly become the ritual of it. Yeah. I love just the process of making it. I love the process of walking to buy one. <laughs> it just feels like such a little treat to go and, and walking around holding one, I think, looks very chic. <laughs> uh, and ad- I think there was something about being very adult, yeah. holding a little, especially if you got one of the little espresso cups. Mm-hmm. I think I sort of walk around and think, I am Paris. I sort of, <laughs> if you go to a cafe and order an espresso and they give you it in a big cup, I think, oh, God's sake, what was the point? So now it's an, es- hmm, I'd have to work this one out down before I tell you. 
because I don't want to get it wrong. But I believe that in Italian, it's espresso for one Mm -hmm. and espressi for more than one. Isn't that good? Yeah. Oh, I love that. So you'd order due espressi. Oh, I love that. See what I mean? Right, this may seem self-indulgent in a genes sense, but as my son and producer John was a guest on my time capsule this year, I couldn't do these episodes without including him, even if it's just to explain why the hell he's a guest in the first place. I was going to say, people may be thinking, why on earth are you doing this podcast? What an extraordinary ego you think you have that people may be interested in you. No, you insisted on it. (laughs) I mean, I said I don't think people would be interested, John, but you said they must hear my voice. They've got to hear me. I'm important. (laughs) Well, the reason... The reason why we're doing it is because I put out a tweet a few weeks ago because we were coming up to the 300th episode saying, who would you like to hear as a 300th guest? And the name that came back the most was my name, amazingly. (laughs) Amazingly. So we thought we'd do this as a bonus episode as part of the 300 celebrations. But this may be a case of giving the people what they want, not necessarily what they really should have. Mm. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, Yeah, it's your fault. If this is awful... (laughs) Serves them right. But it's been fun, hasn't it? Yeah. I would never have predicted that you and I would end up working together. Well, I wish we'd been doing it for longer because I did, first of all, say maybe 10 years ago, we should do a podcast. You know some people. Let's do a podcast when they weren't that big. And if we had started then when there wasn't the enormous competition we suddenly came up against during lockdown, Mm -hmm. we may be slightly bigger, (laughs) which would be nice. But uh, it's amazing what we've done in that time anyway. I mean, really without being rude, you aren't enormously well-known only to a few people. So, for, <laughs> you know, it's just our guests who are the well-known thing and you, that's the only way we can get it out to people say, mm. listen to this. If it was just me and you chatting, I don't think we would have perhaps got quite as far. <laughs> what if we did this every week? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's more impressive that we've got where we are now when you think of the competition and how many podcasts there are out there for people to choose And they choose to listen to this. It always amazes me when people write to us on social media and things and leave reviews and go, oh, this is my favourite podcast. I never miss an episode. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. Mm. And people have been so kind saying it's got them through really tough times and stuff. And, you you know, it's it's amazing when you think of that. Yeah. That people would, would sit and listen to the work we've done. It's amazing. Of course, in reality, you may have switched off hours ago and we're just talking into air, into thin air, as Prospero says. It's me being a bit literary there. Still, I'll persevere. And if this guest doesn't pull you round, I don't know what will. He's the new star of Radio 4 Comedy and a past guest of Mock the Week and lots more, with even more to come, I have no doubt. Here is the very talented Glenn Moore talking about his culinary skills. There were three crucial meals that I made for the most of my most of my time as a student. My my parents were quite um, keen uh, when I went to uni on being able to cook. I was in sort of self catered accommodation. They were like, "You're gonna, you know, you're gonna do this yourself. You're gonna learn." But the meals they taught me to make were not just a simple whack this in the oven. It was like, okay, so this is chicken breast <laughs> stuffed with cheese and wrapped in bacon <laughs> on a bed of tagliatelle with like a sort of cream sauce, and it, it, that cost like eleven pounds to make, which I just didn't have. No. So um, I, the first two years of uni, I think every single day I made um, sausage bolognese, uh, which mm-hmm. was just simply. I chopped up some sausages and I poured tomato sauce on it and uh, as in like a a pasta sauce and then some pasta and in my head that was like that I'm getting everything I need there um (laughs) my my treat meal that I'd have uh usually on weekends was those small round Chicago town pizzas they're really not you know really not very probably about double the the circumference of a of a mug um Mm. and uh you micro those for three minutes but they come in packs of two so what I would do is I'd put one on top of the other and make a sort of sealed off pizza house because they're quite high-rise crusts (laughs) hence the Chicago style um Mm. and I would eat I would eat this this pizza just this this globe it was it was just this (laughs) this disc of pure pizza um and the the, the dough all the way around the outside sort of acted as the plate. And it was just this amazing plate where you get to eat the plate. It was, you know, that, that mm-hmm. was my favourite. Um, and then by the time I uh, was coming towards the end of uni, I was um, I was working at a restaurant about sort of three nights a week. And it was really difficult 
working at this really fancy silver service restaurant. I think I only got hired because I had this sort of um, ridiculous sort of accent and I was up in Sheffield and it was a mm-hmm. really fancy restaurant. Um, Nick Clegg was the deputy prime minister at the time and he used to come in there quite a lot. So it's very, very fancy sort of place. He would have the whole restaurant to himself as well. It was very, very strange. <laughs> they, there were only about, there were only about 30, <laughs> there was probably about 15 tables in the restaurant. But mm. we knew, we always knew in advance Nick Clegg was coming because what would happen is we'd get a phone call like six months in advance of someone booking this table just to t- just book a table for one. And we go, okay, fine. Then the next day, someone would ring up again, ask for that same day and go, can I can I have a table for one? And eventually the entire restaurant would be have been booked up for tables for one, with the exception <laughs> of obviously one table of 10, which is going to be Nick Clegg and all his friends. Mm. And then all those other tables were just made up of security guards who yeah. would just sit at these tables on their own, um, just having, you know, one Diet Coke and not ordering anything. But they'd all, <laughs> they'd all be sat in tables for one, like some weird sort of food exam. It was really strange. <laughs> it was a very fancy restaurant, so it was difficult being there as a student where it was like I was serving all this lovely food that I simply would not be able to afford to eat myself. Mm. And I'd be rushed off my feet, and I'd get back shattered after every shift. And what I would do is I, I cannot believe I was able to consume this as a student but I would usually get three quarters of a pack of spaghetti. I did on one occasion do a whole packet, but three quarters of a pack of spaghetti, um, an entire bag of Sainsbury's Basics beef and pork mints, which they just didn't really, it was just both animals, just all ground <laughs> into this sort of cat litter sort of dirt. I loved it. It was so crunchy. I, I really want to have it to this day. Um, that really em- is whatever's left over. Isn't yeah, it? I'd empty the bag, like 900 grams worth of it, just empty it all out into a frying pan. No other ingredients apart from just a big jar of dolmia sauce or Sainsbury's basic sauce and I'd put that all in and it was so large that I would usually have to cook it in two separate pans and I would serve it in a salad bowl and the (laughs) piece de resistance was I'd get an entire garlic bread baguette and stick that in the top like a 99 with flake and I would just consume the whole thing like a desperate Dan mash pie it was exactly like his cow pie it was Mm. fully like that it was it would take me hours to eat it and I would just sit there at my desk (laughs) my own food exam just eating it all and just consuming it and I just wish I could do that still to this day and I know that my girlfriend would be really really upset if I brought that into the into the home Glenn Moore there and if you'd like to hear more Glenn Moore you know where to go okay that's a whole run of young people time we had a few more veterans apart from me that is so here is the actor George Layton who's been a television star and writer since the early 60s but he goes back a lot further than TV in fact he was more of a radio man in his youth the point about this is Mike is that I love the radio I grew up with the radio and I knew the Radio Times off by heart. I knew exactly what was on any light programme, not so much Radio 3, or third, it was called the third programme, but mm. Home Service, which is more serious and with plays on light programme, was variety and music, and third programme was classical. Mm. But I knew, certainly on the light programme and the Home Service, what was on at any time of day. So later, later years, I'd know when Journey into Space was on or Dick Barton, and then the answers, of course, well, it was a forerunner. I remember all this, you know, and mm. I used to sit in the kitchen. Now, we had a, an old range sitting in the kitchen, and in the winter it was lovely. I had this lovely coal fire, and I'd sit there if I was reading or particularly listening to the radio and see images in the coal fire, fire burning in the kitchen. It was very nice. The trouble was we had to light this fire in the summer as well to get hot water. <laughs> but that was my life growing up in the 50s. Even more curious than that, and I thought everybody lived like this, there were two families. My father came out of the army and he wanted to rent a house. And with another army friend, two families moved in. In the kitchen, they had their own cupboard, stove, or cooking range, or what do you call it, their own table. And we we ate separately, not us all together. It was like just two families living there. And to me, that was normal. That's how I grew up for several years. The charming George Layton with some amazing tales from his youth. Of course, you don't have to be that old for your tales of younger days to seem like stories from another age. It depends what you remember from them. Caitlin O'Ryan, one of the stars of the long-running drama Outlander, told me about visiting her grandmother as a child and her cherished memories of spending time with her in Ireland. I knew that I wanted something to do with family, so I've chosen Enniskillen in Northern Ireland. Right. In Fermanagh. 
So I am half Irish. My dad's Irish. That's the Orion, isn't it? That is the Orion, yeah. Mm. And the Caitlin, the Irishness. Yeah, well, I think course, I yeah. think when people like try to cast me in things, I tend to get a lot of Irish parts coming through <laughs> and then I shock them with my northern accent. Um, so my dad is Irish and he is one of seven. And he moved over to England when he was 18 and met my mum. And because of that, because he's one of seven each child kind of had an allotted time where they would go back and visit my gran in Ireland. Right. And we got Easter because my (laughs) mum's a teacher. So we got the two weeks at Easter. That was the only time that I ever saw my gran each year was these two weeks at Easter. Mm. And I think because of that, it made these two weeks so precious to me. And You know, Ireland's similar to England, but it's also very different in its little quirks. And it was kind of this time that I would get to go back home, essentially, and reconnect with that side of myself. Mm. But I think it taught me lots of things as well in terms of, like, delayed gratification. You know, I think I really ended up idealising my gran a lot because we'd spend these two weeks of, like, intense family time because it was also at a time... This makes me sound old, but it was at a time when, like... (laughs) Wi-Fi didn't exist in the same way. And I don't think they had the European phone connection. So no. like I'd, I'd go over and I'd have no signal on my phone. And it was just me and my sister and my mum and dad in my grand's house. And then I think more specifically, if I was to narrow down further, it would be my grand's house and my grand's kitchen. Because... <laughs> You know, we'd arrive, we'd have got the ferry to Ireland and my gran would have made this, what we called grand soup, which was, (laughs) I think it was like leek and potato base with like loads of other vegetables that she'd found lying around the kitchen that she would make for us. And it would just be the most delicious tasting thing because I'd have spent a year waiting for it. And she'd give (laughs) us like single cream for us to pour into it. And then wheat and bread, which is, I don't know if you've ever had that, it's Irish bread. Oh God, it's so delicious. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, It's gorgeous with like real butter. (laughs) And I think as well, I I write poetry and my auntie said to my dad the other day when I was back home for Christmas, she was on the phone to him and she was like, she gets that from the Irish side. And it's the storytelling. And it made me think that I do, I get it from my gran, I think. And, you know, every morning when I was in Enniskillen, me and my sister would go to bed and it would be like Christmas Eve every morning because we'd wake up and we'd scuttle into the kitchen and my (laughs) gran would be sat there with a pot of tea and we'd have these tea parties, we'd call them, in our pyjamas and we'd got up at like 7am and we'd be sat there until about 9 before my mum and dad got up and she'd just be reciting these tales and it would always be the same stories every year but she'd embellish them slightly more and she'd like really learn where it landed, where we'd laugh, where we'd cry, like she just perfected the art of storytelling Mm. and she'd also like let us put as much sugar in our tea as we wanted and um yeah she was a really amazing woman and I think that time there with family and specifically with her you know she she was obsessed with Coronation Street and every evening we'd have to go in and be silent while she she watched Coronation Street because it was like they were her extended family and when she passed away she died at 7 30 and we said that she was going off to watch Coronation Street Um, so I think yeah I think Ireland and Enniskillen and um the time spent in that house Mm. running around with my cousins and listening to my grand stories and I do little performances for her in the kitchen. <laughs> I think that gives me a connection to my family and to kind of my Irish heritage as well. Mm, I love yeah. the fact that you describe it as going home. Yeah, yeah. It's strange. It's, it's, um, I, I really do feel like it's home for me. So much of my family is over there. And it's just, it, like I said, it's just reconnecting to a side of myself that I think I yearn for when I'm in England and when I'm in London specifically. It's that, that closeness of countryside and the way that, they live their lives is so much more family orientated mm. um, and just the sense of humour and wit and musicality. And unlike the English, not being ashamed that they write poetry because you exactly you hesitated slightly when you told me that. Yeah. Almost as if, oh, should I tell you this? Yeah. It, it's something to be proud of, I think. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, some of my fondest memories are just sat there with my grand telling me these stories and she had a way of like, lighting up our imaginations and she was just so 
funny and cheeky and had a little twinkle in her eye. And one of the most beautiful things that anyone has ever said to me really was that, you know, we were at her funeral and a guy came over to me who I didn't know. And he was like, you remind me so much of her. And it was her brother that I'd never met before. And it just felt so lovely because... My nana passed away when I was 14, 15, so I felt the grief, but I think I lost my gran when I was older and more acutely aware of what grief was and Mm. experienced it in like an adult sense. And for someone to say that they saw her in me, this person who I admired and kind of had on a pedestal, was just really beautiful. Caitlin O'Ryan. What a lovely, intelligent young woman she is. Okay, we've had some very well-known people on my time capsule, but fans of this man are obsessive. Then again, it's not surprising, as he's one of the cast, creators and writers of the biggest comedy show on the telly, Ghosts. Here is the wonderful Jim Howick, talking about a childhood memory that always helps him keep everything that's happening to him in perspective. My first item is a photo, which I'm holding up now to the camera. Oh, right. You can see there's uh, me there. Is that you there? That's me Are there. you the three musketeers? We are. We're the three musketeers. Mm. So, for the purposes of those listening, these two are my neighbours. Uh, they were brothers, Michael and John. Mm. And my sister's six years older than me, so... I was essentially an only child. Obviously, I got on very well with my sister and we're very close. But she was a bit too old for me to play with and Mm -hmm. be a sibling in that sort of conventional sense. So I used to go around to their house and play with them almost every day after school and certainly most days in the holidays. So the night before this picture was taken, The Three Musketeers, the 1973 version with Christopher Lee and... uh, who else is in there? Um, <laughs> Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed, of course. Oliver mm. Reed and Frank Finlay. Is it Frank Finlay's in it as well? Frank Finlay, yes. Uh, Frank Finlay, yeah. Uh, but it also has um, Rory Kinnear's dad. Rory Kinnear's dad. Roy Kinnear, good old Roy Kinnear, a hero. Fabulous, yeah. But I'd never seen it before and I sat and watched it on a, I think it was a Saturday night mm. and I couldn't believe it. It was just my cup of tea. It was swashbuckling. It was, it was, there was comedy, there was sword fights and everything else. And it really appealed to me. And the next day, I got together with Mike and John. They'd watched it as well. And we decided to don uh, bin liners, and <laughs> whatever hats we could. Mm-hmm. Mike, Yours is impressive, I have to say. So mine, is a, mine is a sort of cowboy hat turned on its side. Ah. See? Yeah, it, it could pass for one. Yeah, I think I took it a little yeah, There's bit. an early sign there, Jim. That's all I'm Absolutely, saying. Absolutely, yeah. And then we went to my mum's and she put us put little moustaches on us and little beards. <laughs> Brilliant. And we played in the garden all day. And then Mike and John's dad took a picture of us. And I remember the picture being taken. I was having such a fun day. And then for my 40th birthday, I didn't realise, um, I'd, I'd, I'd completely forgotten about the actual picture itself. Mm. And then Mike gave me uh, the picture for my 40th birthday uh. and tucked in a copy of The Three Musketeers, the book. And, uh, and I absolutely love it, and I treasure mm. it now. And I, I was listening to Simon Pegg's Desert Island Disc the other day. Yeah. He mentioned how whenever he's in a sort of difficult situation filming, and first I should just say that we are extremely privileged to do the job we do, mm. but there are times, like anyone else in any job, where you can get a, a bit grumpy and a bit tired and a bit morose about what you're doing. Um, <laughs> if you have me picked up at half past four in the morning. Where is my car? Where's my <laughs> car? <laughs> is it the right car? I ordered lunch ages ago. I can't yeah. believe it. And then you get to you get to work and you're given breakfast and um, <laughs> you have to wear like Don sort of chain mail or some some uncomfortable costume and mm. or I mean more specifically probably to the point it's a stunt or something you have to do physically that mm. you've been thinking about you've been worrying about how they're going to shoot it just how long you're going to have to spend doing this stunt and how do you sort of motivate yourself to do that and sort of take away the fear? And I feel like looking at this picture is such a great way to deal with any sort of apprehension that it might bring. Because if I put myself in my childhood shoes, Mm -hmm. looking at what I'm doing, then it's an absolute dream what I'm doing. 
Yeah. To be able to jump out of a cart onto a crash mat or to do anything like that is really <laughs> dangerous to us. But I look at this picture and I think, wow, he would have just done that. He would have jumped into a ditch and done a forward roll. And, and, and yeah. the idea that you might become jaded doing the one thing you've always wanted to do is probably a, a very true, real human element. Mm-hmm. I think it's in all of us to forget the grand scheme of things. What an honour to talk with Jim. He really is as delightful as he seems. Now, as you can imagine, when I have to talk to someone on the podcast who is themselves an extremely accomplished interviewer, I tend to get a bit nervous. Then again, Samira Ahmed is the sort of interviewer who is either trying to find out things that her guest doesn't want her to find out or is expected to know all about the thing her guest is talking about. Luckily, when I spoke to Samira, I could be as ignorant as I liked. Or indeed, just am. And leave it up to her to explain things, which she did with great clarity and some force. Just listen to this bit about gender equality. Gina Davis, the actress, set up an institute to study gender in film. Mm. And they do research and they found things like if you ask audiences how many men and women are in the scene, if you have 30% women in a scene, they think there's more women than men. We've become used, and that's because of sort of social pressures. It's not because it's natural. It's just we're so used to seeing men dominate that when you see women get even close to equal numbers, mm-hmm. it's like there are too many women. And the whole problem is just recognising our inbuilt biases. So one of Gina Davis's big suggestions was that every film, unless it's required otherwise for the plot, it should be 50-50 women. So that you just get used to the normalised reality of the world, which is 50%. Mm-hmm. And that actually, something as simple as that would help us reset our parameters. So at that level, if we can't even see men and women in numbers equally, is it any wonder that executives still don't think women can carry a picture? But, you know, I sometimes, I have a lot of friends who are actors and sometimes they ring me for a bit of advice before an audition. And I had a female friend who was going for a journalist role. And it was all, you know, she's ballsy and bitchy and she's an executive and you know and they have you know it's a part so you play what the part requires but the people are writing female parts in this hackneyed way where you're either a you know a ball buster or you're some kind of ultra feminine character Mm. and where's the normality yeah quite well i mean that is the problem at the moment still the problem with politics of course is to a large extent, that the women in it are expected to behave like men or even more so like men. It's mad. And yet what they really need is the idea of people who are quite willing to sit down and listen to other people's ideas and come to a consensus. Well, I think it's to do with who decides how debates are handled and everything is done in a very that old-fashioned way of, you know, shouting and arguing and you're either right or wrong and there's no nuance. And it puts a lot of, I mean, not just women, it puts a lot of reasonable men off as well, I think. It's a great frustration. But I have huge admiration for so many of the women out there who are in politics today, Mm. as well as many of the men who are genuinely trying to make things a better place. But, you know, as we've seen with some of these scandals of MPs struck off for sexually (laughs) harassing and attacking. You know, I mean, there's so many of them. I can't keep up. No. You know, when I was growing up as a child, you know, we all knew and we all warned each other off older men in positions of power, like husbands of teachers and things who mm-hmm. were tried on and, would, you know, and we never told our parents. It was amazing. It was kids had this quiet network to try and protect each other. Yeah. And I kind of assumed that it would be different now because, you know, I raised my children, you know, to challenge immediately and to seek out help and you never accept this, you never keep secrets mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And then you find out all this stuff is still going on with these young, I mean, people like Britney Spears, you know, yeah. who she's was, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s. And look at the way the mainstream press was treating her. The problem is when you're in a room on your own with a powerful man, that's when it becomes almost impossible to go, excuse me, you can't do that. Well, it does make me wonder if even if we know it's a tiny minority of men, it's a bigger minority of men than we thought. I'm just amazed at how many men are being accused of serial predatory behaviour, of trying it on, which is, it's, that's the horror of it. It's like, why would you think this is a nice way to treat anyone? Yes. Samira Ahmed. Well, we're nearly done, but I just want to squeeze in one more clip from our special 300th guest, Dave Gorman. Now, I know I played a bit from him in part one, but I can't resist a second visit. So here he is talking about football. This is the ridiculousness of football fandom, because my dad wasn't into football, and the reason I'm a Liverpool fan is my older brother was, and the reason my older brother was 
is that a bloke that my dad played tennis with <laughs> worked for the club yeah. and gave him pennants and stickers when he was a, a, an, an influential age. Yeah, there you are. Uh, and so we just followed him in it. And I'm deeply aware that if that man had worked for Man United, I'd probably be a Man United fan. If it mm-hmm. worked for Crystal Palace, I'd be a Crystal Palace fan. It's just who... That's how I happened to land, and it's brought me deep joy throughout my life. And I, I don't share that thing of where I'm meant to be rivals with people because I sort of feel the fickleness of it. It's a bit like your religion. It's amazing to me that people of a faith are absolutely convinced that their faith is right, and it just also happens to be the one that was shared by their parents and community while they were growing up. <laughs> and isn't that a stroke of good fortune? Um, and I, I sort of, I'm aware that it's a sort of weirdly fallacious idea, and I don't feel any moral superiority to the choice I made or whatever, but I also can't shake it. But twice I've been in touching distance of Kenny Dalgleish, <laughs> who I, I couldn't... There's not a footballer I could, that could mean more to me. But I, I've been unable to say hello. Mm. He means too much, and it would be such an invasion. But twice I've been there, and I just couldn't bring myself to say, excuse me, Mr Dalgleish, <sighs> and, and tell him how much he means to me. The only time it's ever happened to me is I was standing at a urinal, and Bobby Charlton stood next to me. <laughs> and uh, he said, all right, son... And I nearly pissed on his shoes. <laughs> God bless Bobby Chotton. What a loss. Okay, the final guest of this episode, and I've saved my favourite till last. In the summer, I got to visit the singer Anita Harris, and we talked about all sorts of things from her amazing career. I also took the opportunity to tell her that her hit song, Just Loving You, was my dad's favourite, and that as a young man, I used to sing it during shows I did with him. So it had a special place in my heart as well. What she did for me then will stay with me forever. I'm doing cabaret at a little venue in Nottingham. And the previous week to me is Dusty. So I go up on the Saturday night and stay. It's a venue like a hotel with the cabaret room. Yes. Right, so uh, I saw her wonderful show on the Saturday night. We met for a quick breakfast on Sunday morning. And a little while later, Dusty uh, was on the same top of the pops. I was singing Trains and Boats and Planes. Mm -hmm. I usually put her first, actually. Sorry, Dusty. Dusty was singing, You don't have to say you love me. Just be close at hand. And she waited while I did my rehearsal. And she came across to me uh, and said, Anita, you and your mic need to meet my brother Tom because I think he's got a song for you. And again, on reflection, every time I sing this song, to this day, I thank her, because it was the most generous gift of another artist. She could easily have sung Well, exactly. I do know that she was going into the world of Son of a Preacher Man, slightly changing her own vocal attributes a little bit. However, as you say, she could have sung it beautifully. Mm -hmm. She gifted it. And he gifted it to us. So Michael got uh, Alan Tew to do um, to do the orchestration. And we went in. It was Olympic Studios. And we went in and recorded it. So I think if my first record of acetate that you could smash. Yes. And the one that I will live with, with me forever. Mm. Um, just loving you. Shall we just parcel them up and put them together? Absolutely. With a big thank you note. (laughs) (laughs) To Dusty, yes, Yes. and her brother. Yes. How marvellous. I love that song. I could spend my life just loving loving you. you. If you could learn to fall in love love with me. I'm going to sing it with you now. You don't know how how much much it hurts just just loving you. you. I'm not the laughing child I used to be. Some starry night, I pray that you will come to me and make all my wildest dreams come true. So till then I'll go on scheming, though I know I'm only dreaming. I can't help myself just loving you. You did that beautifully. 
Oh, I love that song. Put your hand in oh, mine. God, that was I so lovely. Any time. We, we did that dad, for your daddy. I did it for my dad. I wish you were alive oh, to hear that. Bless his heart. Mm. There you are. How generous is that? Well, that's all for now. I'm tempted to do one more of these, as there are some amazing people I haven't included. Let's see how things go. In the meantime, thank you for listening to my time capsule, for your support in subscribing, reviewing, rating, following on social media, listening to the theme tune on Spotify, and in some cases, even sponsoring the podcast through Acast+. Bless you all. It's been a wonderful year, and I look forward to doing it all again next year. I hope you can join us on our journey. This was a cast-off production for Acast, produced by John Fenton Stevens. Happy New Year, and always remember that youth is when you're allowed to stay out for midnight, middle age is when you have to, and when you get to my age, you haven't got the stamina even if you want to. But whatever you're planning to do to see the year out, stay safe, and I hope you can say farewell to 2023 with happy memories, but with a keenness to start anew. This year I'm determined to never use autocorrect again. That's my New Year revolution. Bye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.